Our scripture reading for this morning, come with me please in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Luke 15 and verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured his property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, may God bless this portion of his word to us this morning. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this day which you have granted to us. And we thank you for this great privilege that we can come freely to worship you, to blend our voices together in praise to you, to wait on you to hear what you would say to us. For you are the living and the true God. You are the one who has formed this world. You are the God who is enthroned above. You are mighty, majestic, and holy in all your ways. A God worthy of the worship of our hearts. And yet we bless you, our God, that though you are exalted high over all, you've taught us to pray and to call you our Father who is in heaven. That you have revealed yourself to be that to we who are your children. A father of tender mercies, a father wise in his counsel, a father who watches over his children when they go out of the house and when they're in the home, a father who supplies every need of your children, not at times what they think they need, but you and your wisdom know exactly what we need. And we thank you for the tender and true picture that you present to us of what a father truly is. And Father, this, this day which we set aside as Father's Day, as fathers we look and we see how far short we fall to this divine standard. And therefore we confess that we as fathers have sinned against you and those that we have loved, that we have not walked according to the very title given to us. But we thank you that you are a father who pardons, who cleanses, who renews, 
And we thank you, our Father, that we can come to you, each one of us this day who names your name, to know that there is a welcome awaiting us, that the door in heaven is open for us, and that you bid us come ever so tenderly and so graciously, that we might come to seek help in time of need, pardon for our sins, the sense of your presence going with us, wisdom from on high. And therefore we come, O God, that we may indeed be fashioned and formed by you, learning of you, understanding who you are, realizing, our Father, that as we come, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, and yet we come humbly, because you are our Father, who is in heaven, that you're not just the friend next door, you're not just the mate that we talk about, but you're the thrice holy God who is other than we think. But we pray this morning that you give us ears to hear your voice, eyes that we might see you afresh, hands that we might receive from you that blessing which you have purchased for us, and that you would stir an appetite and a hunger in our hearts for yourself. And so we look to you, O God, to minister as our Father to us this day. And for those who are not with us, for those who are grieving, for those who are traveling, Father, for each need, we thank you that you are a Father who is sufficient for each one, able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think or imagine. So come to them, we pray. Draw near to them, that being on the Lord's day, they may be aware that you are on their right hand, and therefore they shall find encouragement and strength for the day. Continue with us now, we ask that all that we say and all that we do will be to your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When I began our series on the 23rd Psalm, I indicated that its uh, structure was somewhat like a three-act play that is scene one is pastoral and that deals with verses one through four scene two is hospitable and that deals with the verse five and then the final verse verse six is scene three and that deals with that which is eternal and this morning, as we continue in this uh, little series together, we come to that fifth verse of Psalm 23. And turn with me in your scriptures to that this morning. For here we read probably familiar words to many of us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Now, if you have been here over the few weeks that I've been with you, you will recognize that my structured sermons basically have three points, and I'm not changing that today, but I am going to say this, that uh, my structure today would have got a failure when I was in homiletics class, because my first two points are going to be very brief, and the last one is going to be a wee bit longer. Something, something that uh, ministers should never do, but nevertheless, there you have it. Psalm 23, verse 5. To consider it first in light of the page of history. That is, what experience led David to record these words? Well, the, the, the background would appear to be the event that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 17 from verse 24 through to verse 29. There we see the, the hospitality of the Gileadite chieftains during David's flight before Absalom. As you read those verses, you see the transparent sympathy of these chieftains. They reason that David and his men must be hungry, exhausted, and thirsty. And then you see the chieftains' impressive generosity. For we read, they brought to David and his men beds, basins, pottery items. They brought wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, goats, and cheese. And then these chieftains came alongside of David and his men and displayed courageous loyalty. It was an occasion where displayed is protection and provision for David, even as David faced the enemy. And hence the words, you prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Psalm 23, 5, in light of the page of history. But then these words also to be seen, secondly, in light of the perspective or light of the, the, the scene, the sight of culture. The perspective of culture. Imagine with me a desert scene. And a fugitive is on the run. He's being pursued by those who are intent on revenge. And with every passing hour, they are getting closer to their prey. And for the, the fugitive, being in this desert region, there's no place to hide. There's no place where he can run to. He's just running, as it were, to put distance between him and those pursuing him. And yet, as he runs... He can almost feel the hot breath of his pursuers on the back of his neck. He keeps on running. He keeps on trying to get away. There's no rock in which he can find shelter. But then, he spots away in the distance the shape of a desert 
tent. And so off he sets. And the way is hard. The enemy is near and night is falling. And just as his pursuers almost reach him, he stretches out his arm and he grabs hold of the tent rope. He's safe. He's secure. And he's welcomed. And a meal is provided. The pursuers have arrived, but they, they stand outside, helpless, because they know desert culture. That a man's tent is a place of refuge. And so the fugitive is safe, secure, and satisfied, and says to his host, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Hospitality in the face of hostility. Psalm 23, verse 5, seen in light of a page of history. Psalm 23, verse 5, seen in the light of the perspective of culture. And so to my third point and major consideration for this morning, and that is Psalm 23, verse 5, seen in light of the parable of Jesus. In light of the parable of Jesus. Come back with me, please, to Luke chapter 15. That portion I read in your hearing but a few moments ago. As you turn to this chapter, there are three introductory points that we must notice here and make here. And the first is this, to notice the context. Chapter 15 of Luke and verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here is a clear link with Psalm 23 and verse 5. Because Jesus is the host. Sinners are his guests. And Pharisees are the enemy. That's the first thing you need to notice. The second thing is this. Verse 3. He told them this parable. How many times have you read that? And yet how many times have you not really read that? Because you notice he told them this parable. Parable, singular. Not, he told them the three parables. Because we have here the story of the lost sheep from verses 4 through 7. We have the story of the lost silver, verses 8 through 10. And we have the story of the lost sons, verses 11 to 32. But these are all the one parable. They are simply Jesus' three points in his sermon. 
They all link and relate to one another. He told them this parable. And the third thing you notice from verses 11 through 32, these verses do not record the parable of the prodigal son. Because what did Jesus say in verse 11? There was a man who had two sons. It's the story of the prodigal sons, my friend. Not just the son. It's plural. Well, given all that, I just simply want to walk through the first part of this story, this parable today, and then, Lord willing, next week, give consideration to the second part, both in light of the 23rd Psalm. But to take the first section, I want you to notice here from verse 11, four scenes, four truths that are set forth for us, four pictures, if you will. The first is this, the son's shamelessness. The son's shamelessness. The ranking in a Middle Eastern home was this. First was the father, and then the older son, and then the younger son. So it is startling to hear the opening speech here being delivered by the lowest ranking member. And more startling is the very speech he makes. Because you notice in verse 12, the son's request. What does he want? The youngest son of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. To request this inheritance while the father was still alive was tantamount in wishing the father dead. The inference here in our language, in our culture, would be this. Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what the son is saying here. I wish you were dead. I wish you would just now drop dead. And the expected response from the father, the expected response, is both to refuse the request and reject the boy from the home with verbal abuse and possible physical punishment. But what we see in this first scene is the father's grace, a grace that demonstrates costly love. For we read, he divided his property between them. The father willingly endures the agony of rejected love. And the point I want you to get here is this. The younger son considers it a misfortune to have to live under his father's roof. He's tired of being obedient to his father. And so he chooses society over family. The son's 
shamelessness. He wishes his father dead. Scene two. The son's sinfulness. Jesus now presents a powerful and repulsive portrait of sin and evil. This, this Jewish boy who wished his father's death gets the liberty he desires and the finance he demands and he goes off to a far country. He loses his inheritance to Gentiles in a Greek city and ends up feeding pigs. He sought for personal pleasure and affluence, but reaped pain and anguish. He wished to be free, but all he gained was bondage. The shocking state of affairs is presented to us in the 16th verse. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This, this Jewish boy or lad now wishes that he was a pig because they had food. He had descended from plenty to poverty. For the reality is, my friends, Sin always pays wages. Sin always finds you out. Sin reaps what it sows. The son's shamelessness, the son's sinfulness, and so scene three, the son's solution. Solution. This, this prodigal may be down, but he's not out. Verse 17, we read, He came to himself, to his senses. Now, often this point in the story is regarded as the son's repentance. That is, he turns around and he goes home. Let me offer an alternative point of view. You remember the words of Psalm 23 and verse 3? He, the Lord Jehovah, the good shepherd, he restores my soul. And so the picture of the shepherd seeking and finding and bringing the lost sheep home in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, and the woman searching and seeking and finding the silver in verses 8 through 10 of this chapter, come to play here. Jesus, therefore, portrays repentance as this, the acceptance of being found. The acceptance of being found. Oh yes, repentance is a change of mind. Repentance has to do with a, a change of thinking. It has to do with a change of direction. But such is due to another's action. 
That is, repentance is not something a person does independently of God. Repentance is a means of grace. It's a response to the the effectual, gracious acceptance of us by God. To put it simply, repentance is a gift that God gives. You get that clearly in Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. And you get it actually all the way through your Old Testament. What did God have to say regarding his own ancient people? Well, David says, he brings me back. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, I will bring them back. Through the prophet Ezekiel, I, I myself will bring them back. Through Zechariah, I will bring them back. And so Jesus, what's he teaching here? Rejoice. I have found my sheep that was lost. So, back to the young prodigal. He comes to his senses. He sees the reality of his situation. And what caused that? You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. The Lord grants the prodigal's reason to return. And so he comes up with a solution. What's the solution? He will return home And convince his father to have him back as an apprenticed craftsman. That's the meaning of the terms. He, you see, he recognizes that that he's not not, uh, worthy to be his son. But with a paid position, per kind favor of his father, he would, once qualified, be able to eventually pay something back of the inheritance money that he had taken. This is the son's solution. And so the fourth scene, the final scene. The son's salvation, verses 20 through 24. And what do we see here? We see clearly three things. The first of which is Compassion. Compassion. Here comes the son. He's confident that he has the perfect solution. And he's got his, he's got his speech all, all written down and it's tucked away carefully in his pocket. And actually it's not his, uh, not his own words. It's interesting that Jesus puts these words in the mouth of the prophet. And the words are actually the words that... Pharaoh used to try and manipulate Moses in Exodus 10. And the concern of Pharaoh at that stage and the concern of the prodigal at this point is not really the sin they've committed, but the consequences of that sin they've committed. You know, it's a wee bit like the sports star or the entertainer who... uh, who uh, eventually owns up to their sin and their crime, 
not because they're concerned that they've committed it, but because they've been found out. And therefore, they want to try and do some PR work and some spin to try and get some popularity back. So the son heads home. What of the father? Or if I can change the image, what of the shepherd? What of the woman? What of the host of Psalm 23 and verse 5? Well, while the son was still a long way off, his father, who has been looking for him, sees him. And we read, has compassion on him, and he runs to him. He finds his son, just as the woman found the silver and just as the shepherd found the sheep. But don't miss the significance and weight behind those words. Because not only is the father manifesting here great compassion, but there is here humiliation. Humiliation. What does Paul tell us about Jesus coming to earth? He humbled himself and was made man, becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. He's talking about Christ humbling himself. Jesus, who left those ivory palaces for a world of woe. He who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. So here is the Father. He's, he's running to see the Son. And running is something an elderly Middle Eastern man would never do. It was regarded as something disgraceful, distasteful, even abhorrent. But the picture is that the father girds up his clothes, he bears his legs, he loses face within his culture, and he humbles himself before the eyes of, of an amazed and alarmed crowd of onlookers. You see, don't imagine here a lone figure running down an empty street. No, no, no. This is a village scene. This is the setting. There's market stalls. There's street vendors. There's buyers. There's sellers. And they're all being disrupted by this tragic figure running through their space. Probably startling the animals and dislodging stalls. This stately figure... No disgraced, running through the street. Why this shameless, shameful, rather, yet passionate display? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. The father runs to the son and finds him, embraces him, and kisses him. For such is the degree of the Father's love. So deep. So deep. That though the Son pulls out of his pocket his prepared speech, love will not let him finish that. Have you noticed that when you've read it? 
The father interrupts him. He doesn't get to say everything he was going to say. Love has conquered him. The shepherd has found him. The host embraces him and endows him with unbelievable generosity. The son's mouth is stopped. All he can do is receive the mercy, the grace, the gifts, the grandeur the father would give him. And that, my friend, is reconciliation. Having our mouths stopped, our sins silenced, and our surrendering to the absolute security and abundant sufficiency of all that love would lavish upon us. And so, in verses 22 to 24, the celebration, the celebration. Who found him? The father did. And where did he find him? In his lostness. Why, why, why does the father run to find the son? Yes, out of love, but more than that. The father knew because of the culture. If the son himself had have entered that village alone, they would have mistreated him. And abused him. Because the whole village knew what this boy had done. What disrespect he'd brought on the family. And the father runs to rescue the son from the enemies of the village. The father runs as the host. And then the father holds a banquet. A very public demonstration of the father's reconciliation. The father is now the host. The joy of the father now at having the son back is parallel to the joy of the shepherd in verse 6 and the joy of the woman in verse 9. Rejoicing fills the father's house. And the father prepares a table in the presence of the enemies. And there's one particular enemy and one particular group of enemies. And who are they? Well, enough for today to point at the figure of the one who refused to come to the table and join the party. The one who refuses to rejoice and the one who refuses to celebrate. Who's that in the story? The other son. The other prodigal. The one who, in many senses, is the focal point of Jesus' sermon. For you see, there is a parallel here in these stories. The lost sheep, the first story of Jesus, the first point of Jesus, is sought for and found and brought home. A picture of the younger son. But then the lost coin, where was it lost? In the home, in the house. It's a picture of the older son who didn't run away from home. Lord willing, we'll develop that next week. But simply to say that Luke 15 is Jesus' sermon on Psalm 23. So, what can we take away today from this parable in the Psalm? Well, as we've made reference already, today is Father's Day. The day we celebrate fathers. 
Every day is Father's Day in heaven. Every day is Father's Day. Every day is a day of rejoicing and celebration. Every day our Heavenly Father is rejoicing and celebrating with His loved ones whom His Son purchased and pardoned and procured. Because what did the prophet Jeremiah write in chapter 32? Verses 29 to 41. God will not stop doing his children good. God will not stop rejoicing in doing his children good. God will not stop rejoicing in doing his children good with all of his heart. Every day my brother and sister in Christ our Father is rejoicing over us. And celebrating that we have been found and are part of the family. What is it that Zephaniah says? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And then listen for a moment. Listen. Listen if you can hear something. Listen. Listen. What are we listening for? What does the prophet say? He will exalt over you with loud singing. We've come together this morning to sing praise to him. He sings over us every day, my friends. That's his delight. That's his joy. That's his glee in having us in his family. He can't help but burst forth into song. Because of his family. What does our father. What does the host say here in this parable. Come let us eat. And celebrate. Come let us eat and celebrate. Now. You know how often we think about the marriage supper of the lamb. That when we get to glory. When we get to heaven. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth. Then everything's going to be wonderful. Listen. We are now to be a people who rejoice and are glad and celebrate our God. The party is here. It's now. It's here. What does Isaiah say? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. The Father, my friends, has prepared a table for us. And there's water for refreshment. There's milk for nourishment. There's wine for enjoyment. There's promises for encouragement. There's pardon for estrangement. There's peace for contentment. There's garments for endearment. There's rings for engagement. And all the rest is spread out for us. No, to embrace and to enjoy, celebrate. For today is the day of salvation, and we are the people of the risen King, the objects of divine favor. We are the apple of our Father's eye. 
and that all that we need for safety and security, all that we need for sustenance and satisfaction, all that we need for peace and for pardon, all that we need for acceptance and assurance, all we need, his gracious hand has supplied. The table is prepared. It's all there, and it's all wrapped up in his beloved son because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He hasn't shortchanged us anything. It's all there. And yet how often we're characterized by complaining and by celebrating, by our mourning and groaning, by our whinging and whining, we fix our eyes on the seen and the temporal rather than that which is unseen and eternal, the table that the Father has prepared. And we do not realize that unless happiness and delight and joy and trust and hope flourish in our hearts, heaven will not be our home. Home is a place for the happy. Oh yes, heaven-bound people do suffer turmoil and tragedy and tribulation. But deep within there's a steadfast hope and a joyful faith in an all-wise Father, an assured security, an abundant sustenance, and a guaranteed salvation. We have every reason to celebrate. For the Father has found us. The Father has brought us home. He's made every provision available to us. And he rejoices over us. And my dear friends, it is the Father's rejoicing over us that is the ground of our rejoicing in him. Our failure to rejoice is abhorrent to him. His celebration is the cause of ours. And we fail to celebrate when we fail to see the table that's been prepared for us. And so the invitation simply given by the prophet, come. Come and dine. Come and dine. All things are now ready. Come, my dear friends, and delight yourself this Father's Day in the true Father, the real Father, the faithful Father. For you see, the Father takes pleasure in giving pleasure to his people. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Our God finds pleasure in giving his people pleasure so that we may rejoice and be glad in him. Well, may the Lord bless his word to us this day. Let's pray. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us, with ever joyful hearts 
and blessed peace to cheer us, to keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills of this world and the next. Father, that we may be a joyful people celebrating you and all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.